Hey everybody. Thanks for checking out something to wrestle today. We greatly appreciate your support. Uh, Bruce and I are working hard to find times and his schedule every week to continue to bring you the show. But all of a sudden I'm busier than ever before helping listeners just like you save more money than they ever thought possible. Don't take my word for it. Just ask Craig in Wisconsin. He recently saved some money at SaveWithConrad.com, left us a five-star review, and he wrote this. The process of refinancing my home was as easy as it could be. Jimmy and the rest of the team were in constant communication with me, and I was never left wondering what my next steps would be. I shaved 13 years off of my loan. 13 years! I received a better rate and saved $110,000 over the life of the loan. I just want to say to Conrad and the entire crew, I love you. Listen, this is a real review. Craig is going to save more than $110,000 and you can do this too. And listen, it's not fancy to figure out how we're doing it. We reduced his term from 30 years. He was just two years into a 30 year loan. So he has 28 left. We found a way to make the payments affordable on a 15 year loan. In the process, we cut 13 years worth of unnecessary house payments off. Run the numbers yourself right now. Throw it in your calculator. You know you've got one. 13 years times 12 monthly payments a year. That's 156 payments. Now, what's your payment? You probably know it to the penny. He's going to save 110 grand. Find out how much money you can save right now for free. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you some cash, we won't waste your time. But we can even help families with credit scores in the 500s. So what are you waiting for? Let us run the numbers. Find out how much money you can save for free right now at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention you get to skip your next two house payments? If you haven't already, you can skip your June and your July payment. You're done until August 1st. And oh, by the way, we're licensed in more than 40 states. So why wouldn't you do this? Get a quick quote right now at SaveWithConrad.com. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. She pooted. What a rib. No, you have a big There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. Was he there? I was there. I don't give a shit. I ain't scared. Scared to shut him. Q Bruce. Ah, Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? 
Hola Juan, hola Tomás, ¿quién es la muchacha? Está María, está bonita. ¿Eh? Sí, está muy bonita. I feel like I should be homeschooling my kids, so I wanted to brush up on my Espanol. Your kids are 20. They're 21, actually. Okay, your kids are 21. What are you, home <laughs> what are you homeschooling now? Uh, Espanol. So how excited were you when uh, Kane turned 21 and you could drink with him legally and he'd just have to steal beers out of your garage like he used to back when we first started the podcast? Well, then, then like you felt obligated to bring... Uh, some of those, you know, they think, oh, hey, yeah, I want to drink, but I don't think either one of them like whiskey or anything like that. And um, my daughter enjoys a glass of wine, and they both like beer. But then they get into that into that foo-foo crap, you know, like the Zima stuff that's out there right now. Oh, bro, that's a shame. I, I, I Listen, if you would have said that Amber was rocking some White Claws, I could have understood. But Zima? Well, that that's, I guess that's what it's called. Okay. Well, listen, that's what all the kids are doing these days. It's uh it's pretty popular, uh, but Kane should not be drinking those. Kane should be drinking something else. Okay. Don't get hot. Um, when we hang up, I'm going to cancel Kane on, on the, the wonderment of Miller light. And, uh, we should just let Amber keep doing her seltzer water gimmicks. No, he enjoy he enjoys you know beer and everything like that, but uh, they they like those those foo foo things so much. So I like I didn't even know what they were, you because no. I'm up and up on the anyway. Well, you would have a few years down here. I mean, down here I had you like going back home singing rap lyrics to the kids, and they were shocked. And you would have had some white claws just because, well, back in those days, uh, single ladies like white claws, so you would have had some. At my house, at least, but not anymore. Ah, oh, hell. Listen, I'm excited. We're not talking about foo-foo today. We're talking about one night stand. Not the kind that White Claws create. The kind that ECW created in 2005. Of course, at this point, WWE owns the trademark, but this is really the last ECW show. Uh, this feels like uh, closure a little bit. If you were a hardcore ECW fan. So one night stand 2005 goes down on June 12th from the Hammerstein ballroom in New York, New York. It does a sellout 2,500 fans for $484,000 at the gate. It picks up another 330,000 pay-per-view buys for a 0.81 buy rate and something we never thought we'd see again. ECW comes back to life more than four years after it closed. Of course, it's not the original ECW. This is going to eventually become WWE CW, but the original spirit of ECW is strong at this first show. And well, it's all downhill after this. And I know we've had a lot of fun over the course of our podcast here together, Bruce, where you have, uh, made fun of ECW and ECW fans. And I know some of that is because you know how much I enjoy it and you're just a heel. God damn it. He's a heel. But the ECW fans are always very loyal to the product, especially during the original run. But after they close, everybody sort of goes their own way. And that even started a little bit before they closed. Um, it's certainly not forgotten though. Uh, how annoyed were you? And I'm not saying this as tongue in cheek, the way me and you do with each other sometimes, but how annoying were the ECW chants at WWE shows? I don't know that, you know, they were annoying if it, look, the audience 
liked what they liked. And there's a portion of the audience that is always going to, you know, be that anti-hero, if you will, and be be the the smart fan or what have you. And there's a lot more of them, and they're vocal. And as long as they're having fun, frankly, I'm happy they're there. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that becomes a thing. You know, anytime there's anything hardcore that happens, a table break or something like that, fans just launch into the chant. And I, I got to think, you know, and I don't know how much of that is by accident and how much of that is intentional, but it is a stroke of genius. Whenever there is something that is quote unquote hardcore, the fans aren't chanting. This is awesome. They're not chanting Sabu or whatever the performer's name was. Instead, they're chanting the company's initials. And that sort of feels like part of what has become, I don't know, code in wrestling. Oh, they were drinking the Kool-Aid with Heyman. And of course that's a Jim Jones reference from way back in the day as like a cult leader. But the idea that you could condition the fans to not chant for the performers who just performed the spot or, you know, whatever the spot was, but instead to chant the company initials, it's, uh, it's kind of a case study of of how to build a brand a little bit in wrestling. Is it not? Oh, sure it is. But here, you know, Hey, here's one for you, Connie being in on, on all the hipster stuff, man. Kids don't know what drinking the Kool-Aid and Jim Jones is. And I just learned that literally firsthand. I'm not being smart ass here because I made that comment and I talked about uh, Jim Jones and Jonestown and both of my kids didn't know what I was talking about. Mm. So I had to have them go back and watch the documentaries and see what drinking the Kool-Aid was all about and following a cult and that one man was able to captivate an audience of people and his, his worshipers in his church to follow him to any length, good, bad, and, or, and indifferent to stop thinking independently for themselves. And in the end, so much so that he fed them Kool-Aid to take their last breath on earth with him and drink the Kool-Aid because you were led there by a cult leader. Um, so that, that's, you know, the, the drink the Kool-Aid thing with, ECW fans is you had one very powerful uh, manipulator in Paul Heyman that was able to present the product in a form that made you feel like you were a part of a movement and that you were anti everything else that was out there and masterfully done that the audience, they saw nothing else. They heard nothing else. They did not realize that, a lot of their product was garbage. Mm. However, they loved they loved what they were presented. Now, I'm not saying all their product was garbage. I'm saying that a lot of it, it wasn't good wrestling. It wasn't even a good presentation a lot of times. However, the presentation on TV, tremendous. I'm sure at the end of this pay-per-view, man, it was a big celebration. You know, not only was it a big deal for the fans... It was probably a big deal for the boys. I imagine it was cigars all around. And if you're looking for the best cigar around, you got to go see our friends at cupofjoes.com. And it's just in time for Father's Day, too. It makes a perfect gift for Father's Day. But don't take my word for it. Go check out all the great deals they've got over at cupofjoes.com forward slash podcast. 
You see, Cup of Joe's is home to over 50 brands of cigars, including favorites like Monte Cristo, Acid, Java, Davidoff, Rocky Patel, Kristoff, and more. And we should mention the guys over at Cup of Joe's, they're huge wrestling fans. So they're just like me and you. And whether you're looking to try a new cigar and singles, maybe even get a whole box. They've got you covered at Cup of Joe's with both great prices and excellent customer service. Check out their page right now for a ton of exclusive deals. Just because you listen, it's cupojoes.com forward slash podcast. Or if you're like me and you're old school, send them an email info at cupojoes.com to talk to one of their awesome cigar specialists. Their cigars are carefully stored in a beautiful walk-in humidor to ensure that your cigars are going to come fresh and humidified. And they've got all the accessories you could ever need. Everything from lighters, cutters, and everything in between. Find out what all the hubbub is about and get dad what he really wants. Some badass cigars and get a great deal in the process. Just go to cupojoes.com forward slash podcast. That's C-U-P-O-J-O-E-S.com forward slash podcast. And when you get there, you'll see what I mean. These guys are huge wrestling fans. So support your fellow wrestling fan who loves this podcast as well. And get dad a kick-ass Father's Day gift over at cupojoes.com forward slash podcast. What if the presentation on TV sucks? Who cares? November of 2004, WWE releases the rise and fall of ECW DVD. And it quickly as long as people pay to see that product, it's all good. Well, they were paying to buy this rise and fall of ECW DVD. It sells out everywhere, becomes a massive success. It exceeds WWE's expectations. And I think that's fair to say that while there may have been a good idea here of, Hey, we've done a world-class doc. Hey, we've done a rise and fall of WCW doc. Uh, we should do one on ECW. It exceeds all expectations. Does it not? Yeah, it did. And and it was a very pleasant surprise because I don't think anybody called that and looking at it when it was released, that audience came out and also the allure because to the WWE fan, you know, Hey, Rob Van Dam was current and he was a big part of that. Very popular. But I think that the, that folklore, if you will, of ECW was intriguing to the average fan and they wanted to sample it and check it out. So yes, I think that, you know, the national exposure, look, if it was that, I mean, let's get this over with in the very beginning. If it was that popular and that great and that many people loved it, it would have still been in business. And this was a example of exposing that to a much larger audience and making it available for the larger audience to sample it. And they did. So more power to it. When should we expect a rise and fall of the XFL DVD? Don't know. I don't do that. <laughs> Just busting balls. You gotta get sensitive. I'll get fucking sensitive. I want to get fucking sensitive. And you, you're like, you, you think you're attacking me. You're not attacking me for shit. How? Why, why would you assume I'm attacking why, you? I mean, I, look, I know. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about, uh, the relaunch of ECW. I mean, here before the DVD, I'm not half hot, you were, half I'll let hot. you know when I get three quarters hot, you, it, then it's, then shit's on. You were about 30% hot when we first got on the horn this morning. I mean, you're in a mood today and, and, and that has nothing to do with me. And it's not fair that you're taking out your real life job stresses on your old pal from Abilama. 
Okay, so you just did something that, that just tickled the fuck out of me. You made fair a two-syllable word. It's not fair. You did. But, but, you yeah, did. that's my gimmick here on the show. I'm the. Uh, I, I'm uh, the. Re- did you hear the way I even said Abalama? Abalama. Everybody says Abalama. How the fuck else would you say it? Uh, let's talk about this though. Well, skies also blue. Shiny object, shiny object, shiny object. Okay. Oh yeah. Hello. Yep. Um, before the DVD, is it ever even discussed that maybe we should do a reunion show? It feels like the success of the DVD catches the company on its heels. And somebody says, well, if there's this big of an appetite for it, maybe we should. And somewhere along the way, I believe Rob Van Dam is taking credit for this idea saying that he pitched it to, um, to Vince McMahon that we should do like a reunion show. And apparently Vince bit, is that the way you remember it? Yeah. Something like that. And, and again, I wasn't heavily involved in it. And from a support standpoint, I think Paul Heyman was, was so against it more than anything as well, because he just didn't want to rehash it and didn't want to go back and, and didn't feel that under the WWE umbrella, it would capture the true essence of what he felt ECW was. You know, what's fun to me is to really think about what made ECW so special. And one of the things that made it that way to me was the fans. I mean, the, the electricity, the crowd, they were whipped into a frenzy and that goes back to the whole drinking the Kool-Aid thing. And I think that pertains to more than just the boys who bought in and and with the whole drinking the Kool-Aid reference, I think it's the fans too, because it's not like whenever, you know, sting would come down from the rafters or Ric Flair would, uh, you know, hit the strut or DDP would nail a diamond cutter that fans are chanting WCW, WCW. I think part of the reason that this brand sort of lived on as silly as it sounds is that chant and that fans just associated a certain style of action or a big spot or whatever with a particular brand. And it just sort of became the legacy and. It's fascinating to me to go back and look at it and realize that part of what made it work is the interaction with the fans. And that perhaps that's never more evident than at this show in particular, one night stand, we should mention there's a lot of old W or ECW wrestlers rather on the WWE roster at the time. And a lot of those guys would still point to, you know, ECW as being their favorite place to work and their happiest time in wrestling guys like Rob Van Dam. And I don't think he necessarily enjoyed wrestling to smaller crowds. I don't think he enjoyed wrestling at 2 a.m. on cable. I don't think that he enjoyed smaller paychecks. I think he enjoyed the freedom, maybe. Uh, maybe the WWE and WCW way of presenting wrestling on television or even on, the, on a house show, just the, the corporate way, was a lot different than ECW. And ECW maybe allowed performers more of a blank canvas. What would you say to that? Yeah, I think that they were allowed to do what they wanted to do at that point. There wasn't a lot of producing being done and they had a freedom there that they were allowed to take their characters and portray it, how they felt it would be best. Um, you know, the, the fans, as you, brought up at the very beginning, I, I learned an awful lot about that actually quite recently where someone showed me an ECW show and gave me the names 
of the fans of of the fans yeah and showed me where they were in the crowd mm-hmm. and when they would get up and how the certain members of the audience sat on that hard camera side every single show and you could tell you would watch it oh i wonder where he's going oh he's going to get tickets he went to go get a drink i missed this because i was doing this um that was interesting to me because now that audience was part of the show and that audience was a huge part of the show. They were characters in and of themselves. So that part is cool. And I think that when you examine that to me, that, that may have uh, been the show. And, and, and what we were looking at in particular was the crucifixion angle. And, and you saw where those hardcore originals, the, the, the guys that would follow them through anything were thoroughly disgusted with that and that they walked out on it and, and you go to the next week. They didn't go to the next show because they were it was their way of boycotting. Of course, they, they boycotted for a short period of time, but and not all of them. I'm just saying there were a few that were very vocal and very disgusted with with that. And I just that was fascinating to me. How much of the vibe of ECW and maybe what made it so cool and made the fans so passionate is because it was, you know, more quote unquote underground, you know, like there's, let's take music. For example, if a band gets, you know, a little bit of notoriety and and maybe they even make it big, a lot of fans would say, Oh, I like their earlier stuff. They preferred them in the club scene rather than the stadium tour. It's like, once they've made it, it's no longer cool, but when it's this thing that is so awesome and not a lot of people know about it, that almost adds to, for lack of a better word, the coolness. Does it not? I remember as a kid before you were even born rush would never allow their, any of their music to be played on the radio, Mm. but they had an incredible following of a fan base that was like, yeah, no, nah, man, I'm cool. Cause I listen to rush. I buy the albums. I listen, I support them and go to their concerts, buy their merch because they don't have the backing of society. They don't have the backing of being played on KLOL, uh, the number one rock, uh, AOR station album oriented rock. They no, nope, don't play us on there. They got over it real quick. Um, but their initial entry was, Hey, we're different. We're anti-establishment we're, we don't want to be on your radio. We just want you, the fan, the true lover of Russian, our music to enjoy us for what we are. And ECW was the same way. And I think that the, the real you know, feeling with anyone that's in business is you want it to be bigger and more profitable. Um, and that may have been what hurt, you know, that, well, it is what hurt them, but there was that, that core, there was that core that was, man, they loved it and you could do no wrong. It's so uh, fun to, to look back and think about really what made it so popular. Uh, let's get back to the story though. Uh, allegedly Rob Van Dam in conversation with Vince would, uh, after Vince initially bites on the idea, Rob makes a list of all the former ECW talent who now work for WWE. And supposedly when he presents it to Vince, Vince didn't even realize he had that many former ECW talent on the team and considering 
you know, that he often has to deal with things at a broader stroke, big picture level. That's probably something that was flying under his radar, right? How many of these guys did go through ECW over the years? Yeah. I think that at that point, Vince didn't necessarily, you know, know at all where guys came from. If they were just, if they were talented and if they had talent and could perform on this stage, you know, since I've been working from home more lately, I found how important it is to make myself get outside every day. I guess I sort of took it for granted before, but not now. Uh, I'm enjoying being outdoors a lot more, and uh, I've recently stumbled across something that made it even more fun to spend time outdoors. A rad power bike. What a great way to get outdoors. Now, listen, I have to admit, I didn't know a lot about electric bikes or e-bikes, but once I started to learn a little more, dude, I'm in. Check this out. Rad Power Bikes is getting tons of great press. They were voted best affordable electric bike in five categories by Electric Bike Review. They're the largest bike brand of their sort in North America. And I got to tell you, I didn't know when I first heard about Rad Power Bikes, like, what is that? Well, here's the deal. It's like a cross between a traditional bike and a moped, but it doesn't require the same type of driver's license or a special driver's license like a moped would. And what's unique about rad power bikes is they're built for every purpose, whether you're just wanting to get around town or get outside or run errands, whatever it is, you can do it. And maybe best of all, it's super affordable, especially compared to other folks. What I found is a lot of the competitors for rad power bikes, and they're like more than three grand. Meanwhile, everything at rad power bikes is very affordable. The bikes start at just 1200 bucks. All of them are under 1500, but what's really fun about this to me Dude, you can get up to 20 miles an hour without pedaling. So you can go out and enjoy nature without getting all hot and sweaty. Tremendous. And by the way, to show appreciation for those that service, Rad Power Bikes is offering $100 off all e-bike purchases for active and ex-military first responders, teachers, and students. They even have a dedicated United States-based customer support team seven days a week to answer any questions you may have. This makes an incredible gift for someone who likes being active or outdoors. And Rad Power Bikes right now is offering flexible financing for as little as 0% APR. And right now, as a limited time offer, you even get a free accessory with the purchase of a bike. That's right. Get a free gift up to $100 in value and free shipping to the lower 48. To get this special offer, just text the word BRUCE to 64000. That's BRUCE to 64000. Text BRUCE to 64000. And we thank Rad Power Bikes for sponsoring the show. Let's uh, let's keep it moving here. And we should remind everybody that Paul Heyman is now under the employ of WWE. He's uh, working in the office, and he starts to push forward on his end as well. Do you think perhaps Paul was quote unquote in cahoots with Rob when Rob pitched this to Vince? I'm not saying that they were best of friends, but we've heard over the years that. Sometimes, uh, I mean, you've even made fun, you know, that, uh, CM Punk should tap out the big show in the Anaconda device in 16 seconds. And so maybe if he pushes too hard, it's never going to happen. And, and we've heard about sort of the hokey pokey that Paul has played with WWE over the years and all the times he was sent home, et cetera, et cetera. But in, will this have been a, a situation where maybe he's sort of tag teaming with Rob to work on Vince, to get this idea to, to become a reality. 
I don't think so. I think that Rob was genuine in his feelings. And if they did, they did. But I don't, I don't think so. I think that it was, that's how Rob really felt. And Rob was passionate about it and thinking that why not? And I don't think Paul wanted to do it. Yeah. That's the other thing that I, that I've always roll tight on that, that I've always found interesting about Paul is Paul, Paul would rather look at uh, through the windshield in the rear view mirror. Paul feels like to me, and I don't know him nearly as well as you do, but it feels like he's more concerned about what's next. What's the next big hot thing? Not necessarily. Hey, wasn't that cool? What we did way back when. I don't feel like Paul's nearly as big on nostalgia as say you or I, is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it is. And, and I also think that Paul's viewpoint at that was been there, done that. Right. And we're not going to be able to recreate the magic that it was at that time in that era, because it was all about that time in that era. So to him, I believe that he felt I'm, I'm good, <laughs> you know? Let's, as you say, move forward and, and just move on from it. Um, so, yeah, I think that, that it was probably more other people's romanticism of the good old days. Let's uh, also talk about Shane McMahon. It's been written over the years that Shane McMahon was a big ECW fan during their original run. Do you remember having conversations with Shane about ECW or maybe taking his temperature on what he thought of one night stand and, and the idea of doing a reunion show? Shane was a big fan of ECW and he, he enjoyed it and just liked the, the presentation of the show, the television show. So that was something that he followed. He watched it, uh, much more so than anyone else. And it, uh, you know, yeah, he liked it. I don't know that there was anything really more to it than that. Rob Van Dam, as we said, is pretty critical to the story of the show. Uh, he did an interview with the UK Sun, and he says, uh, those guys are definitely not going to be drawing the ratings for this pay-per-view. They're definitely not selling any seats. Nobody's coming to see them and they have no business being there. He's talking about WWE talent. The original plan was to only have ECW alumni on the show. And there's no place for somebody pretending they're hardcore when they were never there, whether they've got a sledgehammer in their hand or not. So at some point it starts to feel like maybe Rob is concerned that this is going to become more of a WWF or WWE type show. And Rob even did an interview a while back where he acknowledged a conversation he had with Vince, where allegedly Vince said something like. Rob, for all I know, those 2,500 fans at the Manhattan center were the last of the old ECW fans. And to that point, Rob says, well, how come every town we go to, they still chant ECW. And allegedly Vince says, because we've trained them to do that over the last five years. And Rob sort of throws his hands up at that and says, how do you argue that you just throw in the towel, which is what I eventually did. Were there concerns internally that. Hey, we're not going to stay true to what the original ECW is, whatever that may be. And instead we're, we're going to try to WWE it up a little bit. I think that for it to sell to the, to the mass audience that you had to WWE it up a bit because then it's a little bit more us versus them. 
I don't think there was an audience for whatever. I, I can't even tell you what the programs were amongst them. Uh, other than, I guess, Tommy Dreamer worked with everybody. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I think that you needed that to make today's audience care. Do you think that Vince, <coughs> God bless you. I think it's been said over the years that Vince, when it came to this original pay-per-view, the gist being he sort of knew what he didn't know. He was a little more, uh, conscious of the fact that his view of what wrestling was or sports entertainment was rather didn't exactly line up with what made ECW ECW. And if it was going to be what it once was, maybe he just needed to carve off, uh, you know, enough authority to Paul Heyman for him to sort of see his vision through. I mean, Paul Heyman, the original sort of genius behind ECW and the owner, do do you think that Vince had confidence that Paul could pull this off or did he still feel like he needed to sort of have his thumb on it? I think anything that's going to be produced under the WWE banner, Vince is going to have his say it's his show. So if he's going to produce it, he's going to look for input from people and take that input and make it what he would like to make it. So it's his show. You want to be, you want to present on his stage and you're going to present with his rules. Let's, um, talk about what Wade Keller wrote in the torch. He says, although the WWE creative team is taking a ton of internet heat for the perception that they were heavily involved in the ECW pay-per-view Paul Heyman butted heads with Vince McMahon more than anyone on the show. It was Vince who decided to place the WWE crew on the show, which is an idea that Heyman originally rejected. Heyman told friends over the weekend that he was not happy with the first week of pay-per-view hype, which led to meetings with McMahon. After working out the details of the ECW crew showing up and running off both the Raw and SmackDown wrestlers, Heyman was okay with WWE's presence at the show. And despite the backstage incident with Blue Mini, which we'll talk about later, Heyman made it known that he was very impressed with JBL's performance on the pay-per-view. This is sort of fascinating that, and we're going to get to it. It's not just ECW guys. We do have a little bit of WWE influence, but not a ton as far as their sort of traditional cast of characters and storylines. Did you think at any point, man, this thing's going to blow up before it ever actually happens? No. I really didn't. I, there was there was no reason for it to blow up, and I think that it was just a situation of here it is, and, and this is what it is, and, and let's take it from there. I think that the the romanticizing of of oh my God, it's us versus them. It wasn't us versus them. It was just you know it, it was a presentation of a show is what it was and you either like the presentation or you don't hey man how are you listening to this show right now you need to be using the new wireless earbuds from raycon i'm talking about their newest model i'm talking about the brand new everyday e25 earbuds they're the best ones yet they've got six hours of play time seamless bluetooth pairing more bass and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise isolating fit Here's the deal, man. Whether you're working from home, you're working on your fitness, you want to be listening to what you want to listen to. 
not what everybody else is listening to. And sometimes if you listen to this show, you don't want your kids to hear it. Here's the deal though. You get the gist. Everybody needs a great pair of wireless earbuds, but before you go dropping major coin, I'm talking hundreds of dollars on a pair. Why not check out what I know to be the best earbud around talking about the wireless earbuds from Raycon. I've got my wife using these. I've got Dave Silva using these. I've got my mom and dad using these. It's a nice, comfortable fit. And you've even heard on Eric's show, he talks about how sometimes uh, other earbuds hurt his ears, not with Raycon. He can wear them for hours on end. They're so comfortable. They're perfect for podcasts. They're perfect for working from home. Uh, I just use mine for everything. And, and I think you will too, but you should know this Raycon earbuds start at like half the price of all the other premium earbuds on the market, but they sound just as amazing. And I think they sound even better especially from a base perspective. And unlike some of those other options, these are way more stylish, way more discreet. You won't look like an asshole with those stems hanging out. You know what I'm talking about. And you've heard me talk about the company and how it was founded by Ray J. You should also know that a bunch of other celebrities and musicians have jumped on the bandwagon, this being their earbud of choice. I'm talking Snoop Dogg, Cardi B, J.R. Smith, Brandy, even Melissa Etheridge. Everybody is obsessed with the Raycons. Man, Eric Bischoff won't stop using his. If you're doing a Zoom call with him, you see him wearing them all the time. And now's the time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon. We're talking 15% off your order at buyraycon.com slash wrestle. Go to buyraycon.com slash wrestle for 15% of your wireless Raycon earbuds. Just get them right now. Buyraycon.com slash wrestle. What are you waiting on? I don't think you're there yet. Type it in. B. U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com. That's buyraycon.com forward slash wrestle. Let's talk about who would have been helping sort of locate uh, some of the talent and put together the card. Who would have been in charge of reaching out and trying to secure the talent for this show? Is that a, is that a Tommy Dreamer thing? Is that a Paul Heyman thing? Is that a Johnny Ace thing? As far as I know, that was Dreamer and whoever was in talent relations. I guess that would have been John Laurinaitis at the time. Does, as far as you know, did Vince have any sort of input on on who's on the show or what the card looked like, or is that all Paul just putting pen to paper and Vince giving it a thumbs up? I think it, yeah, I think someone coming in and suggesting this is what it would be, and him saying okay. What about uh, Hammerstein Ballroom? You know, this has been something that's been debated over the years that. The two most famous arenas, uh, from a, an, an old school ECW fan standpoint are the ECW arena at the corner of Swanson and written easy for me to say at the corner of Swanson and Rittner in South Philadelphia. And the other being the Elks lodge in Queens was the concern that neither one of those either a held the capacity or could handle the production. Um, or was it just, Hey, we want to be in New York city and, and, and we like the look of Hammerstein better. Well, I think that the Hammerstein definitely did have a better look sure. for it. And I'm not sure that the ECW arena would have been able to handle all of the, um, the needs of a production, the size of what we would have done. I mean, you and I know what that was like dealing with the ECW arena when we did our show, just trying to get another microphone. Right. So I think, and that was long after it had been remodeled and redone and, and updated allegedly. Um, so I think that Hammerstein and Elks Lodge, I would assume, would be very similar. 
And Hammerstein, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because, I, again, I, I don't know, was that also was an ECW arena that they that they loved, and that was a New York City ECW kind of not stronghold, but definitely one of their premier, like, oh, my God, we're going to the Hammerstein. That was a big deal for them. So this was a big deal for ECW to put it out there. Let's, uh, let's talk about the pricing structure. Wade would write the $200 tickets for ECW's pay-per-view in New York city's Hammerstein ballroom were dropped to a hundred dollars, which could mean that many fans who paid one fifty initially will end up sitting behind fans who paid just $100. The ringside $400 seats did sell out right away, but overall the experiment of charging much higher prices than usual was considered in retrospect to be overly aggressive. The 2,500 seat venue will be full and the total ticket revenue will be amongst the highest for the month of WWE due to ticket prices, even taking into account the slashing of the $200 tickets in half. This is fascinating to me because I remember I was actually at this show and I remember there being so much controversy that the ticket didn't come over. Did you live in Stanford in, in 2005? No, but okay. Never mind. Um, chat me up though. This was a big controversial thing. I mean, back in the day, ECW tickets. I mean, if you got front row ringside, uh, it was a hundred dollars at best. I mean, most of those tickets were very, very affordable here though. We're selling them for 400 bucks. They sell out right away, uh, but then there's other pricing tiers that are kind of pricey, you know, talk, chat me up, talk me through this, uh, the pricing strategy here. Is it based on, well, we know it's a 2,500 seat venue, but if they really want it and this is the one-off, they'll pay it. And then maybe we were too aggressive and we had to walk it back. Is that basically the story in a nutshell? Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you what their idea was on that. But obviously, I think that they got in. And without a doubt, every time that you look at any large arena, like especially stadiums and uh, things of that nature, your middle-tiered Seats are usually the hardest ones to go. So they might've been a little too aggressive on those. I have no idea. You know, this was a show that had its own crew, had its own direction and their own, uh, it was a one night stand. It was a one-off and I was busy doing the other two shows in that, Hey, go for it. Um, when we get to our shows, how we're going to promote it and get there, I'm all in, uh, but I'm not necessarily as involved in the promotion and production of the show. Let's, uh, well, you know, you know why we picked you, you're on the 15 year anniversary here and you like to argue with me about ECW. So you're the right guy for us to talk about this. Um, we have talked about some of the other names that were on this show. You know, the ECW originals, uh, Sabu and all the other guys who were under contract, uh, or not Sabu, but Sabu's on the show, but Rob Van Dam and his pal Sabu and so many other talents like Tommy dreamer are already a part of the crew, but some of the names that were big names in ECW are not going to be on this show. And maybe most notably the first world champion, Shane Douglas. Uh, we've talked about the fact that this show happened at Hammerstein ballroom, but two days before this. Before one night stand, 
Shane Douglas decides to host his own ECW reunion show. And that one does happen at the ECW arena in Philadelphia. And on that show, we would get Shane Douglas, Sabu and Terry Funk, which was one of the early, more notable matches in ECW history. The undercard has Raven and Sandman and just incredible and Jerry Lynn and kid cash and two cold Scorpio. They had a ton of other names from the FBI to Danny Doring to Axel rotten to Joel Gertner on and on. Why wasn't Shane Douglas a part of one night stand? Was there just too much, uh, heat between the company based on the whole Dean Douglas thing and what all he had said in shoot interviews and in other places about the company. Was it him and Paul Heyman not getting along? Why was Shane sort of from the outside looking in? Best that I remember. I don't, I don't think that the people that were putting together the creative, uh, wanted to use Shane. And I think Shane had made it known that he didn't want to be a part of it. So it's a combination of both. Part of this too, is I think at the time Shane is working with uh, TNA and he does an interview around the same time where he says that Vince is, um, created the need for the hardcore homecoming show, which is what he's calling his ECW arena, uh, reunion show. And he says that the reason it's necessary is because Vince will not allow a talent trade. So if you're associated with TNA, he's not going to let you have an opportunity to come over. You know, I, I get that maybe in a, a WCW or even now, maybe an AEW, you know, piece of business, but TNA, I mean, did you guys ever seriously consider TNA a threat or a rival? I mean, especially for a one-off show like this, or what do you think Vince's rationale and say no TNA guys? I, I don't know that was ever said. I have no idea that that was said. That may be speculation. And, you know, a lot of people go ahead and they, they speculate and, and, uh, some of your friends that write, uh, periodicals that are, uh, fiction nowadays, you know, they, they make up stories and they just say what they think probably happened because they have no true insight or no true real reliable sources or anything else that could give them actual facts of things going on. So they just make up things so that they can talk and fill columns in whatever it is that they're writing. So I don't know that Vince ever, you know, considered that at all. I do know that when I was at TNA that they were open, you know, they came to us for a talent trade with Ric Flair and, and, uh, Christian and it wasn't some ooh taboo thing. It was, hey, let's talk about it. So that's that's fact. Right. That actually happened. I never heard of this. So to say that it never actually happened, I couldn't tell you one way or the other, but I do know that I never heard of it, wasn't involved in it. In storyline, at least on TV, we start to see the seeds of this show being planted on the May 19th Raw when Tajiri and Chris Benoit were talking about ECW and they decide to have an ECW rules match against each other. And a few minutes into the match, Bischoff and uh, Coach come out and says something like, there'll be no mention of ECW on Raw. And then in late May, uh, we've talked about this before, Eric has a funeral for ECW. And this is sort of a fun... Uh, never thought it would happen moment in wrestling history where you've got Eric Bischoff, Paul Heyman, and Vince McMahon all in the same ring at the same time. 
that was uh that was a pretty cool visual if you were an old school fan was it not yeah i thought it was fun i ranked it up there with the first time that eric walked out on raw and hugged vince that was a cool again to the insiders that get it they get it to those that don't it was still a part of the storyline that was going on at the time so it was a very cool visual that worked and fit, you know, it fit every box. Let's talk about the relationship between Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff. We've seen, you know, through, through television angles that these guys were not big fans of each other. What was their relationship like in 05 though? It was good. As far as I know, you know, it was, it was fine. They, they both, uh, Eric was a talent. So Eric came in and worked as a talent and did what he was asked to do. Pretty much got along with everybody. And it wasn't, you know, when you come to work a lot, you don't have to like everyone you work with, but you do business. And that's what always fascinates me when, oh, well, goddamn, they, they didn't like each other. Why didn't they just go fight each other in the back? That's not business. And, um, in 2005, both Paul and Eric were businessmen taking care of business. What's in your- a new company, they both work for the same goal. Right. Yeah, yeah. What would your family do with an extra $108,000? That's a problem that our listener Jacob out in Colorado has. Now, thanks to SaveWithConrad.com. He recently saved money with us over at SaveWithConrad.com. Gave us a five-star review and wrote this. Our previous mortgage company made each step of the process difficult, but Jimmy took it in stride and made it happen. He was able to lock us in at one and a half percent less than we were at and saved us $108,000 over the life of the loan. Guys, that's unbelievable. Jacob saved more than 108 grand, but how much can you save? It's free to find out right now. You don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket. And if we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. Find out how much money you can save right now for free at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. And oh, by the way, did we mention no house payments for two months? And we're licensed in more than 40 states. So what are you waiting for? Start saving money today at SaveWithConrad.com. The the go-home edition of Raw, uh, before one night stand, Near the end of the show, we see uh, Eric Bischoff, Christian, Tyson, Tomko, and Edge come to the ring. And Eric says something like, Paul Heyman, for once in your miserable life, you've decided to keep your word. You said you weren't coming along, so you show up with the Dudley Boys. Quite frankly, I always thought the Dudley Boys were a little overrated. Nonetheless, all you're doing, Heyman, is making our jobs easier. Tonight, we're going to take you three out. That way, I don't even have to show up at one night stand. And then that way, this Sunday at Hammerstein ballroom, whatever crumbs of ECW are still left over, we're going to feed to SmackDown's Kurt Angle, JBL and his cabinet and kill ECW once and for all. So that's sort of how we're, we're getting, uh, the WWE involvement. And, uh, you know, there's going to be a, a, a big hubaloo here on the go home edition of the show. We should mention one of the guys who's not on the show, who is on hardcore homecoming that I wish would have been here, Terry Funk. And it's been said that Paul Heyman wanted him on the pay-per-view, but Shane decides to side with the little guy and he goes to the hardcore homecoming show instead, because allegedly he didn't want Vince making money off the ECW name, which made me laugh because he 
worked the one night stand 2006 show. Uh, but either way though, it is sort of in Terry Funk spirit to not take the, the corporate gig and side with the, the renegade outfit group, right? Terry's Terry. I love Terry to death and Terry's going to do what Terry wants to do at the time. And that's what makes him Terry funk around the same time. Um, court Bauer comes into the promotion. Uh, he had booked major league wrestling in 2003. He got a regional clearance through the sunshine network in Florida. He tried to sort of mimic the ECW look and feel even down to having Joey styles as the announcer. Was court involved in one night stand at all to the best of your recollection? I have zero idea whether he was or not. I have no clue if court was involved one way or the other. Let's talk about the go home edition of SmackDown before one night stand JBL cuts one hell of a promo on ECW and Paul Heyman. And he basically says that Heyman taking credit for Benoit Guerrero, the Dudleys, Mysterio, Austin, and Foley. Is like Al Gore taking credit for inventing the internet. And then he says, newsflash, Paul Heyman is a liar. At least Al Gore didn't live in the basement with his mommy. At least Al Gore didn't bounce checks to his buddies. At least Al Gore wasn't such a bad businessman that Vince McMahon had to give him half a million dollars to bail him out. And then he blew that too. At least Al Gore didn't run for president in a bingo hall. Man, does anybody know how to get heat with this audience better than John Bradshaw Layfield? Yeah, I would say that John's pretty good at getting heat. And just for the record, I don't think that Paul ever lived in his basement. Paul, Paul's room was on the second floor of a very beautiful room. <laughs> they shot. T- hey, let, let me tell let me tell you something, man. If I had that house to live in, I wouldn't leave it either. Oh, was that nice of a crib, huh? Oh, it's his parents' house. Yeah, but look, um, Paul Heyman's parents, I don't know what they did to deserve Paul, but um, two of the classiest Swedish human beings I've ever met on the face of the earth. <laughs> really, really, really great people. And um, yeah, just just sweet, sweet people. And they had a beautiful home there in, I guess, Scarsdale. And uh, hell, I wouldn't leave it. Please. Fascinating. Uh, it's also worth mentioning, uh, right around this same time, this is what's known to ring of honor fans as the summer of punk, because it looks like punk is going to go to WWE and it feels like, uh, he's out of here, but then he wins the world title and then signs his WWE contract on the ring of honor world title, uh, the afternoon of one night stand. So there's a lot of hope from the independent wrestling fan scene that CM punk is going to be, uh, a major player here with the company. And it's kind of cool that it happens around the same time as one night stand your old pal, Kevin Kelly makes a bunch of, uh, negative remarks, um, about the promotion in this era. He said something about triple H in particular, like, uh, nobody's going to get more over than him. He's going to make sure of it. And if you don't have the right political clout in that company, it's going to come back to haunt you. Kevin Kelly is a guy, man, you haven't spent a lot of time talking about here on the show, but in this era, is it just cool to sort of take shots because maybe they'll bring you back? I know that sounds silly and maybe counterintuitive, but you feel like over the years, 
guys like Bobby Heenan who never say boo about Vince or the company, maybe they don't get an opportunity to come back, but guys who go on a massive smear campaign like the ultimate warrior or Bret Hart, they get welcomed back in. Do you think that's what Kevin was angling for here? Maybe let's turn a, a shoot into a work and maybe get a gig or what's your thinking to be clear. Did you just compare Kevin Kelly to Bobby Heenan? No, I was, I was making a, a, a note that if you trash the company in this era, they're going to bring you back. But if you don't, well, that may be the last we hear of you. Goddamn Conrad, you use Bobby Heenan and Kevin Kelly as your comparison, comparative examples there. And I, you know, um, I don't care, uh, what people say it's, you're always going to have naysayers. And I think that a lot of times that people will say controversial things to be noticed and say, Hey, look at me. I'm saying something controversial. That's just going to happen. And when you're in business, you have to understand that and look at it and realize what they're doing and take it as grain as, you know, with a grain of salt, just, okay. Is that how you really feel? And I guarantee you face to face when you talk to him and say, Hey, that, if that's how you feel, then we don't need to have this conversation. And when they're looking for a job and they're calling, looking for work, um, they'll tell you at that point in time that, Oh no, I just was trying to make some noise and, and get out there with my comments. So I don't take a lot of that with, I don't take a lot of that to heart. Yeah. I think that's, uh, that's the attitude that most of the company would, would take just because we've seen how it plays out so often. Let's talk about bite this, which, uh, I guess is sort of the WWE's podcast before podcasting was the thing. It was a, a video show on WWE.com. And, uh, they're going to have Paul Heyman and Tommy dreamer as guests. And after playing a soundbite of Eric Bischoff running down ECW and Paul Heyman, uh, Heyman's going to say that the real reason ECW died is because the wrestling verbal burst and TV executives were looking for alternative programming in place of wrestling. And he would say that WCW lost $80 million there last year. Meanwhile, ECW only lost 7 million over seven years. And dreamer said something like if we had $80 million. ECW would still be in business and bite. This would either be called blow me or eat me. And <laughs> Heyman said he wanted to shoot some more and cleared up the misconception, but he, um, he says he gave wrestlers like Dean Malenko and Ray Mysterio and Tommy dreamer and Steve Austin, a platform to perfect their craft. And he says that JBL's promo on SmackDown was merely Brian Gerwitz trying to quote unquote shoot on television. Uh, or keywords. Uh, I always say it the wrong way, the way you like. Heyman is, uh, sort of defending his position from ECW back in the day. Does this fly under everybody in the office's radar? Does anybody care at this point what Heyman is saying about ECW, or is this more just pay per view promotion? It's pay per view promotion. Of course. That's all it is. They do even talk about which I was kind of surprised that, you know, they, they addressed it on bite this Shane Douglas's hardcore homecoming show. And Heyman said he hopes the show does well, 
because he wants any product trying to capitalize on the ECW experience to be successful. Quote, I never want someone who is searching for the ECW experience to be frustrated or let down because that hurts the ECW legacy, which I thought was pretty cool. And of course, Tommy dreamer being one of the boys says he's glad that a lot of the wrestlers are making another payday, but he says the homecoming show would not be authentic because it's not really Paul Heyman's vision. And dreamer pointed out that Douglas doesn't like Paul Heyman and Paul Heyman replies. I don't give a fuck if he likes me or not. I'm not here for him to like. So that answers our uh, question about whether or not Shane Douglas and Paul Heyman got along. Heyman closes the show by saying his contract is up at the end of the year and he doesn't know if Vince McMahon is going to want him back. But Heyman said, if the pay-per-view does well, maybe Vince will want him to come back and do a return ECW show or maybe explore other projects. Um, let's get to one night stand Hammerstein ballroom, much different venue than you guys would normally run. It's, uh, it's also probably a challenge to set up. You've told us before that in the early days of raw, it was a bitch to get the ring and all that set up, right? Still is a bitch. You got to bring everything up. They don't have a freight elevator and you've got to bring everything up through the passenger elevators, uh, pain in the ass. So the, uh, the show doesn't happen without some fireworks. Wade Keller would write that when a pregnant Dawn Marie arrived, she's welcoming everybody and saying hello. And she offers a handshake to Francine, but Francine ain't having it. They have uh, a bit of a, a rude conversation with one another. Did you know about, or did you think that there would be any sort of backstage hijinks here? I mean, it's almost become legendary that the ECW locker room at times could be like the goddamn okay corral. Did you assume that because this was under the WWE banner that everybody would be on their best behavior and none of that shit would exist because perhaps a lot of these talents saw this as an opportunity to maybe do more with the company. Well, you would hope that professionals would act professionally. As a result of this Don Marie Francine incident. They do a, a pre-show meeting with the talent that Vince McMahon and Johnny Ace run late in the afternoon. And Vince specifically says, Hey, you got to put any old grudges to the side for the night. And he asks everyone to be professional and settle any disputes they have at another time and another place, which of course is going to be something that becomes relevant later in the show with JBL. Um, we'll talk about that later. It's, it's also something I learned in my research that I didn't know before we started doing these podcasts, that Vince McMahon was working the gorilla position throughout the show, sitting right next to Paul Heyman. And he's also helping produce the announcers. This is, uh, I don't know. We've seen a lot of footage over the years of you sitting next to Vince and gorilla. It's a little hard for me to imagine Paul Heyman and Vince McMahon sitting side by side in gorilla. It feels like that's oil and water as far as their view on wrestling, especially when it comes to ECW. Do I have that wrong? No, they're two producers that, yeah. I mean, I guess maybe because it's normal, um, to those that actually exist in that world, it's, there's nothing abnormal about it. Supposedly the WWE agents are here. Uh, Johnny Ace, Gerald Briscoe, Arn Anderson, uh, Tony Gurria, Ricky Steamboat and fit Finley. They're all here to work backstage, but they're not being intrusive. According to one wrestler that talked to Wade Keller, they're letting the guys 
sort of do what they want to do. And instead of dictating to them, they say, Hey, what'd you guys have in mind? We're here if you need anything. So more of a support role. How would you say that's different from say a raw or a SmackDown and what the agents would do these days? I, you know, for the most part, the producers help the talent lay out their matches and let them know what is in store for them for the evening. Um, I, I don't know how this was done since I wasn't there, but I can only imagine that a lot of the that was taken care of before the guys ever even got to the arena so that people knew who they were working with, knew what was expected of them before they stepped foot in the building that day. And the producers were there to just make sure that there was, wasn't anything that was going to be too crazy or uh, offer their assistance in putting things together and making it flow and work better. Another day at the office. Were you excited to see some Chinese pro wrestling when AEW announced that they would be featuring Chinese wrestlers on their program? Well, you can watch Chinese pro wrestling right now by checking out Middle Kingdom Wrestling. That's MKW. MKW is the top pro wrestling organization in China today. It's a unique pro wrestling company with Chinese characteristics. It features one of the most internationally diverse rosters in wrestling today from nearly 30 countries so far. MKW has showcased, developed, and promoted wrestling in other countries like Nepal, Vietnam, Thailand, South Korea, with a more particular focus on countries that are a part of China's One Belt, One Road initiative. MKW live broadcasts in China consistently attract millions of fans, even often reaching 10 million concurrent viewers. Before the COVID-19 pandemic hit, MKW was on track to host the first ever all-women's wrestling tournament in China, and they were also planning a Malaysian wrestling tour in the first half of 2020. These plans are still intact once it's safe to return again. Now, MKW prides itself on cultivating the development of pro wrestling in China and in countries where wrestling is still underdeveloped or not quite widely known yet. By joining the MKW fan community, you too are helping pro wrestling develop around the world. Find out more at middlekingdomwrestling.com or just look for Middle Kingdom Wrestling on YouTube or Facebook. It's also MKW China on Instagram and MKW Wrestling on Twitter. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Stephanie and Triple H did not attend the show. Shane McMahon is spotted at the building early in the day. Uh, Joey Styles and Mick Foley are going to do commentary for the show. Mick was in ECW back in 95, but most fans remember that Joey Styles did commentary for the most part solo. You know, occasionally he would have. Uh, Don Callis or sorry, Cyrus, the virus or, or something like that. But for the most part, this was always Joey's show. Uh, how was Joey to deal with? I mean, we know that he's eventually going to wind up landing a deal and become uh, a part of the team for many, many years, but this is really what helps jumpstart all that. Right. From my point of view, Joey was always e easy to deal with. And uh, I thought Joey was a good commentator and as a human being, Joey was a stand up human being and hard worker. So, you know, he was always e easy to deal with. I think after this, he would pop up in November at uh, taboo Tuesday. He's brought in to fill in for Jonathan coachman and fast forward. He becomes a regular part of the team. I think sometime in January. So, uh, it worked out for, for Joey, if nobody else, it's worth mentioning. Mick Foley was also at Shane Douglas's uh, hardcore homecoming a couple nights before this. Uh, the show begins with Joey Styles coming to the ring to introduce the show. He's near tears. The crowd is chanting Joey, Joey, Joey. 
This is one fired up crowd. Mick Foley is going to come to the ring with his old cactus Jack theme music. And then they play the classic uh, ECW intro video. And our first match is Lance storm. Who's got Don Marie and uh, he's going to pick up a win over the Lionheart Chris Jericho in seven minutes and 23 seconds. When just incredible hit Jericho with a kendo stick while the referee's back was turned. And Joey indicates that this match could quite possibly be Lance storm's final wrestling match. And, uh, gets two and three quarter stars. You watched it this week for the first time in a long time. Uh, we've got, uh, the usual cast of characters here, not just Don Marie, but just incredible Jason Knight. They're all going to pose in the ring after the match. What'd you think? I thought it was a good match. I mean, good Lord. You got, uh, Lance and Chris in there. So of course they're going to give you a good match. They were former partners. They've known each other well. And the match itself, you know, shit, it was good. It was good. It's, um, we should mention that he actually technically Lance storm, uh, he resigned in May of 2005 saying that he wanted to go open his, his own training school, but he does pop back up, uh, for, uh, May 30th, 2005 to wrestle Sunday night heat. And then this is his last uh, show with WWE for a while. Of course, we know he's going to. Uh, pop up in some independence here and there, and then ultimately come back as a producer, I think in 2019, but it's fun that we got to see this match in particular. Uh, some of our younger fans may not realize that Lance storm and Chris Jericho actually started working in America for smoky mountain, Jim Cornette's old promotion uh, known as the thrill seekers. So this is sort of full circle and they're trying to pay homage to the past, even calling Chris Jericho Lionheart, which was his nickname in ECW. I like the booking and the decision to put these two guys together. And it's probably impossible for these two to have a bad match. Corazon de Leon. That's old school Lucha Libres right there. See. Si. Next yo, up. Yo estoy el muy español. Hola Juan. Hola Tomas. Quien es la muchacha? Esta María. Esta bonita. Eh, si. Sí, esta muy bonita. I don't know what any of that was. She just ordered lunch. See, uh, <laughs> next up, we've got, uh, Joey styles introducing a special ECW remembers video package, highlighting the deaths of former ECW alumni. The list includes Rocco rock, Terry Gordy, crash, Holly, the original Sheik, Mike Lazansky, uh, Pitbull, Anthony Durante, Durante, excuse me, uh, big Dick Dudley, Chris Candido. They've got dates for their years, you know, that they were alive and, and all that. And it's a pretty special little moment and, uh, not something that we would see a lot over the years in WWE programming. Were you shocked that Vince allowed like a big list of now deceased wrestlers to play on, on one of his programs? No, I think that, um, you know, it is what it is. And that was something, this was nostalgia and this was a way of remembering those that had left us. Of course, fans later would say, oh, where was Louis Piccoli or Brian Pillman or Road Warrior Hawk or Eddie Gilbert? But either way, I thought it was a nice touch. Our next match is super crazy, picking up a win over Yoshihiro Tajiri and Little Guido. Tajiri has Mikey Whipwreck and Jim Mitchell with him. Little Guido has Tracy Smothers, Big Guido, and Tony Mamaluke. It's a triple threat elimination match. Of course, we know Guido is more commonly referred to as Nunzio in WWE. Uh, he's eliminated first by Tajiri after a whippersnapper by Whipwreck. And prior to the elimination, 
super crazy connected with a high spot of the night moonsault off the balcony onto the FBI down below quite a visual there. Uh, ultimately super crazy picks up the win, uh, two and a quarter stars. Wade would say the action felt rushed at points. The three-way dance is sort of, uh, ingrained in the culture of ECW. What'd you think? Super crazy to Jerry and little Guido here. Well, all three guys, great workers. And again, it was fun to watch and made me remember big reason why we brought super crazy in just, he's so talented and expressive with his face to Jerry, you know, good Lord. I can't sing his praises enough. Um, but Guido, I don't think Guido gets spoken about enough as being a hell of a performer in his own right, because he wasn't the biggest guy in the world, but he could go in the ring and had shitloads of personality. And I think a lot of times that he's, uh, he's an afterthought. And I think that he should definitely be recognized as one of the top talent from that era. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next match It's Ray Mysterio and psychosis. They go six minutes and 20 seconds. Ray gets a win with a springboard hurricane Rana. Um, but that's not really the story before the match psychosis takes off his mask, which the ECW audience here is not a fan of. They wanted him to keep the mask on. That's what they remember. And they also didn't like that. Ray used the six one nine to set up the springboard hurricane Rana because that feels more WWE than ECW. Overall, Wade would say the match felt rushed and gave it two stars. Mysterio and psychosis, uh, were two guys who tore it up in ECW and Mysterio's match with Hooventude as well, but they were sort of, at least in my view, responsible for bringing Lucha Libre to the hardcore fans, you know, the quote unquote, smart marks of the Northeast. And it didn't take too long for all these guys to land a gig with WCW and then become a big part of nitro and maybe one of the more exciting parts of nitro. And now it just, it's just regular par for course now on American television, but that was not exactly the case before them. So it was cool to see them have a moment here. Although six minutes and 20 seconds is maybe not enough time to do what they, to show what they could really do. what do you think Mysterio and psychosis here at one night stand? I thought it was a Lucha let up match and both guys did what they do best, but it wasn't like, Oh my God, this is the greatest match in the world. It was a lot of Lucha high spots that was meant to be exactly what it was. It was a Lucha match. Let's, uh, let's talk about what happens next on the show. It's a contingent of SmackDown invaders led by Kurt angle. They're going to arrive at the Hammerstein ballroom, sit in a private balcony. And, uh, before finding their seats, the SmackDown crew is cursed at by the ECW fans. There's a huge fuck you SmackDown chant that starts up. Joel Gerdner makes his first appearance of the night and he's quickly kicked out of the private seats by JBL. And then angle takes the mic and runs down the ECW product and its fans before turning the mic over to JBL who runs down the quote unquote internet fans for talking to their friends about the product in between visiting porn sites. The fans are all over him here, chanting, shut the fuck up. And JBL says, I'm a wrestling God. You can do your little chance and root for your people, but nobody in that ring will ever make it to my level. Nobody. So get your little chance and your little loser buddies and get on the internet and tell them that this guy who sold out arenas all over the world told you that 
we will sell pay-per-views because I am here, not because of the crap in the ring. This is really great heat shit. And it feels like it's got Vince McMahon's fingerprints all over. If you had to guess, you would probably be inclined to think that that's, uh, that's Vince at his best, right? Uh, you know, I'm, I think that that's probably a combination of everybody. I think Paul felt that as well. And this was a way, if you're going to be a heel to that audience, be a heel to that audience and attack them where it hurts. And when they have to look at themselves in the mirror and go, oh shit, he may be right. That's the best kind of heat. Rob Van Dam interrupts all of this with Bill Alfonso by his side and, uh, says the, uh, WWE contingent that came to the show. Well, you should know that people are tuning in at home to see ECW, not these wrestlers that they're tired of having shoved down their throats. And RVD indicates that he was working without any quote unquote creative geniuses. And he's shooting straight from the, from his heart. And he says his greatest moments in professional wrestling came in ECW and he was proud when he was the TV champion and had the opportunity to give fans a great show. And he takes credit for coming up with the pay-per-view concept that we're enjoying right now and says that he pitched this ECW reunion show to Vince who agreed that it was a good idea and he's hobbled here. He's on one knee. So he's emotionally hurt, not being able to wrestle because of the knee surgery. And then of course, because we know that he's hurt, here comes Rhino and, uh, he's going to gore RVD. The lights go out. And when they come back on very old school style, Sabu standing in the ring, man, so cool. Um, fun little moment here, a way to introduce Sabu, do the whole lights on lights off gimmick and give Rob a little bit of TV time. He's got to be uh, pretty tore up that this thing was all sort of his idea. And now he can't have a traditional match because of the leg injury. You know what ECW meant to Rob? That's a pretty devastating deal to him, was it not? Yeah, it was. It really was. And this was probably one of Rob's best promos of his career. Came from the heart. And you did. You felt that disappointment that Rob was feeling. So it was very well done and put a spotlight where a spotlight needed to be. Um, what did you think of, I mean, we know that a year from now, Vince is really going to go with Rob, but do you think Rob just going out here and doing a really long promo that's unscripted just from his heart and seeing the way the crowd responds, do you think that sort of allowed Vince to turn the corner on him? Like maybe Vince saw Rob in a different light here. You know, yeah, you got to got to see Rob's true personality come out, and you got to see that you know he's not just a laid back stoner guy, and that there was an audience related to that. The the WWE version of Rob Van Dam had just been cool and whatever, sort of the stoner attitude, like you said. So this to me is sort of. Uh, I don't know, probably a pivotal moment in Rob's career, at least when it comes to Vince McMahon's perception of him. But as we said, it leads to a match here, Sabu with Bill Alfonso and RVD, of course, there to support him taking on Rhino Sabu picks up the win in six minutes and 27 seconds with an Arabian skull crusher through a table. Uh, it's uh, what's described as another crazy high octane spot fest. We should mention 
Rhino was fired right after WrestleMania of this year. So a few months prior to this, um, we haven't ever really talked about that. Do you remember the circumstances around Rhino's dismissal and, and why ultimately he was able to come back here? I do not, but I know that, you know, coming back here, I think that as far as talent to be used in this pay-per-view, if they meant something to ECW, then they were going to be going to be back. And as long as they all agreed and, and it worked for the show. I think the rumor and innuendo that was reported at the time was Rhino had maybe some sort of, uh, an argument with a spouse or something in the lobby at WrestleMania and like got gets frustrated and picks up a giant pot and crushes it or something. But it was the t- sort of negative attention that WWE would want to always avoid, but especially WrestleMania weekend. Does any of that ring a bell or could I have just made that up? Yeah. I think you're mixing your stories up with people. Okay. Uh, Terry Funk is, uh, not here. We know that, you know, him and, and, um, Sabu and, and Shane Douglas tore it up two nights prior to this. Do you think that, and we know Shane's not here and he's drawn a line in the sand or whatever. Do you think Terry Funk regrets not being a part of a, of such a important show like one night stand 2005? Possibly, but you know, like I said earlier, Terry's Terry's going to do Terry. And that's what makes Terry Funk so unique and so loved is that in a lot of ways, you never know what Terry's going to do. And whatever Terry does is what he firmly believes. So it goes with the wind. Uh, next up, Eric Bischoff leads a contingent of raw crusaders to the private WWE section of seats to join the SmackDown crew. Of course, the fans are hurling all kinds of obscenities at Bischoff as he walks in. He's got major heat, but we've got another great match coming up. It's Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. Benoit gets a win after nine minutes when Eddie submits to the crippler crossface. Uh, Wade would write another match that felt too short to reach anything close to its potential two and three quarter stars. Wade would even write Eddie was not happy with the finish for his match against Benoit and never seemed to get into the event as a whole. He also seemed upset with the crowd chanting at edge in the opening minutes of his match against Benoit. There were some heated words exchanged after the match between Guerrero and Benoit as a result of how the match went. We've heard, you know, that these guys were best of friends and, and we know how tight they are, but it just feels like this match is not maybe what it could have been. And maybe Eddie just wasn't in the right state of mind at the time. We know that we're going to lose Eddie not too many months after this. Do you remember hearing that Eddie wasn't pleased with this match in particular? Well, you can kind of tell by watching it that he's not necessarily pleased with it. The match was good. It was solid, but it looked like they weren't exactly on the same page all the way through the match. And I could see Eddie being upset, but I, I didn't hear anything big. Oh my God, Eddie and Benoit were pissed off at each other. Guys, sometimes they have fuck ups in matches that come back. What the fuck happened out there? That's it. Now, to someone that has never actually been in that environment, oh, my God, they yelled at each other. Um, might think that's a big deal. I doubt it was anything. Let's uh, mention that Joel Gertner is going to make his second appearance of the night and ask Eric Bischoff for a job. Bischoff shoves Gertner away and said he didn't want any of the ECW fans to show up at this show because they're not of the same class as the Raw fans. And, uh, Bischoff of course says ECW sucks. 
Next up, maybe uh, the most spectacular visual of the show. It's Mike Awesome and Masato Tanaka. They go 11 minutes and it's over after an awesome bomb through a table. Mike Awesome picks up a win here. During the match, though, the cameras are going to cut to various shots of JBL and WWE wrestlers laughing their way through the endless table spots in the match. Plenty of chair shots, including a string of chair shots, no soul by Tanaka. Of course, we know more about head injuries and head trauma now than we do back then. And some of this is hard to watch. Um, Wade would write the match was a major clusterfuck, but it was the high point of the night because of the endless near falls and a hot crowd response three and a quarter stars. So even though he calls it a clusterfuck, he gives it three and a quarter stars because fans are white hot for this. Is this sort of what you were referring to at the start of the show where you says you, you said that this is just not very good. It's it's garbage, but the presentation on TV sort of camouflages that and fans have an appetite for it. Yeah. And, and again, I didn't like the match because they didn't sell anything. And it, it, after a while, all those chair shots and all, all that crazy crap, it means nothing. Um, might as well one with a roll up type thing. Cause it, it just, everything they had done to that point meant nothing. So I'm not a big fan of it, but I'm not a fan of that type of match. So there you go. So he was right on the clusterfuck part. During the match, Mike awesome suffers a deep gash on one of his knees. When he dives over the top rope on a Tanaka at ringside, the cut needs a bunch of stitches, but no serious damage to the knee. Uh, I think his knee pad catches the top rope as he's like slingshotting himself over the top. And that's why he lands a little awkwardly. Uh, unfortunately we lost Mike awesome, uh, in February of 2007. I just, it feels like such a missed opportunity. I I'm reminded when I watched this show back, how great Mike awesome was. And just from a, a physical imposing specimen who can do big stuff. It just feels like Vince would have absolutely loved this guy. Is it just that Mike awesome didn't have the best promo? Did he not have whatever sort of charisma that Vince was looking for. What was the, the limiter for his WWE run in your perspective? The it factor and and the personality more than anything. And Mike awesome, I think was a great example of the human being out of the ring. One of the nicest, most personable guys you'd ever want to meet. And also having the size, the look and the talent inside the ring, but there was just something missing that he did not connect with the audience and uh, had a hell of a career in Japan. But it just when you when you got him here and, and tried to take him to the next level, there was just wasn't going to happen. It just wasn't going to go. And it's a shame because the the human being, um, great guy and funny and shitloads of personality. But just um, a terrible tragedy, but also it's, for whatever reason, never really hit in the American market. Paul Heyman comes out to the ring sporting a headset and that long leather jacket. He's got tears in his eyes as he steps into the ring. The fans are just covering up with thank you, Paul, chants. 
Uh, Paul is uh, soaking in the moment and, uh, he says, it only looks like I'm crying because I've been in the back smoking a joint with Rob Van Dam, which gets a big pop from the crowd. He acknowledges a lot of people who helped along the way, of course, including Todd producer or Todd Gordon and the producers. And of course the fans. And then he points to Bischoff and says, you're in our house, bitch. And fans go nuts for that. And of course, Bischoff shoots in the middle finger. And then Bischoff makes fun of edges, relationship issues. And says he has two words that no one else has the balls to say, Matt freaking Hardy, which I guess is technically three words and edge sells it sort of cartoonish. This is in the era, by the way, where Matt is no longer with the company. He was involved in this love triangle with edge and Lita and then he keeps coming down the line, just busting everybody in the company, including JBL saying he's only uh, WWE champion because quote, triple H didn't want to work Tuesdays, which is a great line. Uh, and JBL is mocking being hurt by the comment. And, uh, then he finishes with, uh, this isn't raw. This isn't SmackDown. This is ECF and W pretty emotional moment here for Paul, probably a little bit of, uh, closure for him, if you will, because ECW went out of business with a whimper. So to go out with a big bang like this, it's probably pretty important to Paul. Yeah. And I'm glad he got to go out with that bang. You know, I wish that it had ended here. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I'm sure that he probably thinks so too. And through everything that they had been through as a company. And as you say, having to close the doors the way they did, that it would have been nice to have this one tie a bow and move on. Next up, we got Bubba Ray Dudley and Devon Dudley. They're going to pick up a win over the Sandman and Tommy dreamer. And after 10 minutes and 15 seconds with a double team power bomb on dreamer through a flaming table. Uh, the Sandman's entrance is the most notable thing on the entire show. And it's a shame that the WWE network won't let you enjoy it the way it was intended. And what I'm talking about, of course, is WWE manages to license inner Sandman from Metallica. And of course, back in the day, ECW was a bit of a renegade and they were playing music without paying licensing fees. Uh, that was not going to happen on the WWE watch. So they licensed it for a one-time use, but the pay-per-view feed of this show, if you can find it somewhere on the underground internet, it is unlike anything else I've ever seen. And I know what you're going to say, Bruce, and then the bell rang, but the actual entrance of Sandman, that's what fans paid to see, right? It was almost like the ultimate warrior running to the ring and shaking the ropes. This was the ECW version of that drinking a beer, smoking a cigarette, singing along with the crowd. It's like, uh, almost like a cool concert vibe. Is it not? Yeah, it was a great entrance. I mean, it was one of those moments that it was a great entrance. No doubt about it. Ultimate warrior had a great entrance too. We should mention that, uh, we've got some of the ladies involved here. Electra is, uh, going to get beer poured all over her breasts and, uh, yeah, real tight on all that. Uh, then of course, we've also got Beulah McGillicuddy and Francine getting involved. We have to see a cat fight. Here's your spot for it. That's ECW. And then of course, Spike Dudley makes an appearance to light a table on fire before the Dudleys slam dreamer through the table. And, uh, Wade would write, it was the spectacle it needed to be to live up to the expectations. And he gives it three and a quarter stars. Pretty cool that Vince was able to, um, be convinced 
to pay the rights for inner Sandman. Most of us listening to this have never had to do a licensing deal like that. How much do you think a one-time use on a pay-per-view would cost for a song from Metallica? If you had to guess, I have absolutely no idea, but I do know that it was also kind of a, a favor deal as well. And for one-time use on the pay-per-view. So that, that entered into it. And, um, I don't think it was as much as you would expect. I should also mention this is going to be the Dudley's last match in the WWE for over 10 years until they come back in 2015. Uh, after the uh, match, Sandman is a, a, a stumbling drunk mess and he's asking for a beer. The glass breaks and the man with the answer, Steve Austin comes to the ring to a huge pop. And Austin said something like, I've seen you drink. You don't need a can of beer. You need a case of beer. And he calls out the entire ECW locker room for a beer bash before sharing beers with everyone. And then he even calls out the WWE crew to partake in a fight. And the WWE guys slowly make their way to the ring with Bischoff sitting in on commentary. And before the two sides mix it up, Taz makes his first appearance of the night to choke out Kurt Angle. And a brawl ensues with the ECW guys eventually clearing the ring of this WWE contingent. And Austin calls for Bischoff to take his obligatory ECW beatdown. Foley drags Bischoff to the ring where he takes a 3D, a flying headbutt, a 619, and a stunner for good measure. And the Dudleys haul Bischoff out of the arena into a flatbed truck outside. As Joey Styles says, this is the greatest night of my professional career. And then the beer bash is had in the ring with Austin and Sandman sharing a beer. And, um, the show closes with Austin and Sandman standing atop the ECW entrance ramp with their arms raised. And it's a, it's a cool little finish to the show the uh, steve austin beer bash i don't think a lot of people would have called a steve austin appearance here right yeah but it was exactly what it needed and i think steve being out there it, it kind of brought everything together and then you get your big brawl uh, wade would write austin got caught up in the atmosphere in the building and had a great time he was described as cordial gracious and even humble by backstage observers he was hanging out with wrestlers all afternoon Austin even confessed that he believed drinking a beer with Sandman did as much for him as it did for Sandman. Uh, Mikey Whiprick asked Austin before the show, if he minded, if he did the whippersnapper, which is basically a stone cold stunner off the second rope. And Austin said he was cool with that, admitting that he copied the move for Mikey in the first place. So of course he could do it. Quote, Steve was so cool about everything said one ECW wrestler to Wade. We should also mention that in Steve's only singles match in ECW, he lost to Mikey Whipwreck by pinfall back when Mikey was the ECW world champion in 95. So it's fun to see, uh, that sort of come full circle. Of course, we can't talk about this show and not talk about what happened during the brawl. There was an incident between JBL and blue Manny, uh, where JBL starts punching Manny in a shoot, causing Manny to bleed for real. And then several ECW wrestlers start going after JBL until Bubba Ray Dudley pulls him out of the ring. Wade would write the locker room sentiment seemed decidedly anti JBL quote, JBL's a dick and has a huge ego. A lot of people backstage enjoyed Paul putting in his place during the promo, but what the fuck do you have to prove by beating up many? Um, that's all from an ECW wrestler to Wade JBL accompanied by Orlando Jordan did step onto the bus after the event and was told by a large group of ECW wrestlers that he loved the show and really appreciated what they did. 
Some thought it was a magnanimous gesture at best, but others saw it as JBL just trying to save face. In any case, JBL was consistent in saying he absolutely loved the event. It was his first ECW show ever. And of course, a few days later, blue Manny would write about this on his website. <sighs> it's a mess. Um, what'd you hear? What'd you think about this dust up? Well, I, I didn't even hear about it. I watched it when it happened and everything. Didn't, didn't even notice it. Uh, frankly, heard about it afterwards and, uh, according to John, he had been hit in the back of the head and turned around. There was Meany. Thought Meany hit him in the back of the head and uh, proceeded to throw live rounds at Meany and wasn't proud of it, wasn't happy with it. And, you know, it was that night, everybody upset, tempers flaring, and not a good night. But after that, they, they got together and shit, I think they're friends now. Yeah. Uh, Manny would write on his, uh, website, what turned out to be a beautiful weekend came to end on a sour note. I guess by now you all know what happened last night between Bradshaw and myself. It's no secret that Bradshaw never liked me from my first day in WWE to my last, what I did to piss the guy off. I don't know, but then maybe I never needed to know Bradshaw has always had the rep of being a bully and a Liberty taker in the ring. And he also had a rep of getting away with it. Once the ECW WWE raw started, I paired off with coach and I felt one punch come from out of nowhere. My first instinct was to hit back, but I also had the issue of trying to protect the 14 staples I have in my head. I got some rib shots in the best I could, but he got the upper hand going with my face and opening a fresh wound on my forehead and swelling my eye. All I saw was red as the blood filled my eyes. And I believe it was Maven. I pulled on top of me to get him to quote unquote, choke me. After he got cleared out, guys came up to check on me and we went on to the other deal with Austin and Bischoff and the big post brawl party in the ring as fucked up as what Bradshaw did. The crowd reaction had me so buzzed that I didn't feel a thing. I got to the back and Bradshaw was in part of the gorilla position and he came over like he was going to do something else, but people got in between and he was yelling about me talking about him on the internet. The rest of what he said, I didn't hear because I was too busy saying it's a work. The business is a fucking work. So I did the best thing anyone could ever do in that situation and just walk away. I got stitched up and said my goodbyes. And a lot of guys were pissed and asked what happened. And when I told them they were pissed even more, we got home and all I've been doing ever since is popping a leave, icing my face and reflecting. It's, uh, it's weird that, that this happened here and JBL is going to tell his side of the story. This is before the brawl at the end of the pay-per-view Manny started cutting a shoot promo on me saying the reason he got fired. And the only reason I got to where I am was because I suck Vince McMahon's dick. I was incredulous. I thought there was no way he could really mean this. So I got to work with him at the end and here we are trying to give the fans a great finish and he begins and we begin to lock horns in the melee, but he's basically not even acknowledging my presence. Now I might've caught him uh, snug with a shot. He started throwing back heavy punches, including a body shot. So make no mistake. I club him back to make sure he knows I'm not playing. And I think I got him with a shot over the eye and one near the forehead and apparently opened him up a little backstage. I asked him if he wanted to finish it right then and there. And he told me it's all a show and that he didn't want to fight. And he pretty much ran off. It's worth mentioning that when, (laughs) when Minnie goes through the curtain, 
Johnny Ace is furious with him and says, what the hell was that? And I was like, what JBL shot on me. And he was like, no, no, no. Who told you you could blade? And I was like, I didn't. And he said, what? So this is all maybe a giant miscommunication. I, I, I don't know, because it feels like we've got two different stories. Uh, where do you land on all this? In the middle. I think that, you know, it's one of those situations where just tensions were high and, and everything gets escalated out, out of control. So that shit happens in physical sport. Um, I don't think John was right in it. And I don't think, you know, look, it ain't ballet. Right. Shit happens. Sometimes unfortunate things happen. The important thing is that once everybody got back together, cooler heads prevailing, that it was a misunderstanding and you move on. Well, after everything happens and, and Manny writes, you know, a blog and does some interviews, WWE calls and brings him in. And when he gets to the building, they go, well, you're wrestling JBL tonight. And I go, does John know this? And they say, you're going to hit a moonsault and you're going to win. And I say again, does John know this? I was in Sacramento at a super show and JBL comes up and says, Hey man, you want to talk? We go find a room that is way in the bowels of the building. And I'm thinking this is kind of weird. I'm hoping when I walk in the room, there's no plastic on the floor. Cause I've got to run. When we go in the room, he says, Hey man, can we, we can talk or we can fight. And I said, I don't want to fight. So we just talked. I gave him my perspective and he said there was a lot of stuff he didn't remember. And in terms of the match, JBL said we could fight or we could make money. And Manny said, he's all about making money. And, um, he also said, I think fans are on to us because, uh, you've uh, followed me or, or like something on social media. And, um, obviously we know where this, this plays out. The, it's the July 7th, 2005 SmackDown. JBL and blue Manny wrestle in a match against each other. Stevie Richards who's good friends with Manny, part of their old BWO crew, the blue world order. He comes in and destroys JBL with an absolutely vicious chair shot to the head that allowed Manny to get the win. Oof. I mean, I guess I'm glad that it all came to an end, but that chair shot son, one of the most brutal in history. Yeah, it was. And, and John took it and moved on. Let's get back to the show though. Wade Keller would write. It was obvious to everyone that Vince McMahon and the agents were blown away by the pay-per-view, but few people, particularly McMahon would sell it. The general consensus is that McMahon doesn't know what to do next with the brand. Perhaps the first hurdle will be re-signing Heyman, whose contract expires in approximately six months. McMahon was stoic much of the night when Heyman made his comment about triple H not wanting to work Tuesdays. McMahon didn't react at first. When he realized everyone else around him was laughing and people were looking at him to see his reaction, he began laughing, but it seemed forced coming three seconds after the joke. The WWE production team wasn't as pleased. And the thinking is they're used to, uh, controlling WWE events, but they had little chance to control much of anything in terms of crowd behavior and lewd chance. And they're also able to use state of the art arenas, not smaller, more intimate arenas that cause them to be sort of out of their comfort zone. What'd you, what'd you think of this report that Vince isn't really selling it, but perhaps it's because Vince doesn't know yet what to do with the brand. Let's fast forward a few days after this pay-per-view once raw is in the books and now SmackDown's done, 
let's say Wednesday, Thursday, the following week, you're starting to not only get feedback, but maybe some preliminary numbers. Did you think, man, we're doing this again, or, Hey, we might have a third brand on our hands. I thought that, look, I fucking hope we would have done the number we did. I would have hoped that there would have been interest in it. I just don't know that there was longevity in it. And I did not think that it was, oh, my God, we've got a third brand. I just thought, okay, great. You know, there was an interest there. It was good nostalgia thing. But for the same reason that it didn't work before, I didn't see it working again. So to that, I thought, good night, and let's – take that and move on from it. And maybe there's another reunion show down the line with something else, but, um, didn't think there was a third brand. I really didn't because it just, they liked though. They liked those acts and those acts time was passed. And I just didn't, I just really didn't see it. And as far as, you know, talking about, you know, control, well, who doesn't want to have control of their business? And I, I, I like it. I'll take the mortgage business, you know, with you, if, if you had a bunch of guys that were, um, writing up mortgages every day and going, Oh my God, look at how great we are. Everybody loves us, but they were writing them for three, four points lower than you as a businessman would want them to, so that you could make money and continue to stay in business. You wouldn't have control. And that's so like when you take it to another business, that's how you had to like an ECW where there needed to be more control and more oversight and so that they could make money and continue to stay in business and make money. Well, we know how this is going to wind up. It becomes one of the most legendary pay-per-views of all time. Uh, tons of great feedback, universally praised. They do it again the next year, this time with Rob Van Dam and John Cena. Rob Van Dam becomes the world champion at the end of the night and the ECW brand and relaunch for WWE ECW is all set, but, uh, it wouldn't have happened without this show. Bruce, are you going to celebrate the 15 year anniversary? Are you going to watch this show back? You want to join me? I know we're not going to record it or anything, but I'm throwing a big party, man. I'm going to blow it out. This was a fun show. Well, I'll go to the party. No, you won't motherfucker. I'm lucky to get you for 90 minutes a week. Now you're coming to Alabama. Come on. Well, can we zoom? <laughs> no, we can't zoom. The day I zoom with you is the day I delete your goddamn number. Zoom. Oh, that hurts. No, I'm just saying you got you got a fucking floor here at my house. There's a whole wing. It's the, the brother- entire. We, I was just gonna say I got a whole wing. It's the brother love shack up there, and it's just got cobwebs now, and some of those pickles are going to waste. Hey. Listen, I know this wasn't your favorite topic, but I appreciate you being a good sport because I think a lot of our listeners, and we've got a lot of the quote unquote boys who, who grew up loving ECW and this was an important show for them and gave a lot of closure and it was a big deal for me. And, um, you know, I've got some great wrestling friends. That's what I call them because that was really what we had in common. And they didn't keep up with wrestling in 05. They were completely removed from it. Didn't care a thing about it. But when they heard ECW was coming back, they were back in for a little bit. And that's sort of the whole idea behind nostalgia, right? To bring back the lapsed fans a little bit. Yeah. And, and just give them a taste of nostalgia, get to see what their favorites look like today and take it there. 
Well, we've got a lot of fun stuff coming up for you. We hope you guys enjoyed our in your house episode. We've got Jacques Rougeau, earthquake vengeance. 05. we're even going to cover a slam anniversary show from 2017. That's right. A TNA show at some point in July, uh, slam anniversary 2017. Would you have ever guessed if I told you in 2017, once this podcast had worked your way back into wrestling with, with impact wrestling, that you would be where you are with WWE. Would you have ever predicted that? No. So there you go, boys and girls. Important to never say never. There you go. Never say never. And and more importantly, what we've learned through the course of doing this podcast together is to ask early and often, why not? And just try it. And once upon a time, WWE just tried it with this one night stand concept and it worked. And uh, we appreciate you guys trying this podcast with us and appreciate all your support. You can get these shows early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. You can also get some incredible bonus content. Uh, we dropped the in your house show way, way early. We dropped this one night stand show way, way early. We've also got uh, an old watch along, which a lot of people said was something to wrestle at its best. That's the feedback we're getting. We watched the Saturday night's main event from right after WrestleMania six, April 28th, 1990. We've got Hulk Hogan working with Mr. Perfect after perfect had only lost one time. Uh, to Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake at WrestleMania six, but we've also got warrior in his first big title defense against Haku and incredible tag matches on this card, uh, with the heart foundation taking on the rockers and demolition. Just come watch and take a look uh, such a great time for tag team wrestling, but maybe one of my favorite things on the whole show, it's sprinkled with arrogance promos the entire way through. Oh, and by the way, you get to see Vince McMahon wearing a cowboy hat on a fucking horse in the crowd. Bruce, this was a wild show. Was it not? It was a great show. Austin, Texas, probably one of the only decent houses we ever did in Austin. And don't forget. We've also got WrestleMania eight. One of our most requested WrestleMania shows. Bruce wasn't there, but he does have unique insight. All that bonus content, plus more than 20 live shows and the very last live something to wrestle that happened at StarCast. You've got all StarCast stage shows from StarCast 1, 2, 3, and 4, all available over at adfreeshows.com. Don't forget to pick up a t-shirt over at brucepritchard.com. Save yourself some money, skip your next two house payments, and get an incredible rate that saves you tens of thousands of dollars over at savewithconrad.com. Until next week, he is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey Hey, It's Conrad. Our show is at Pritchard Show, and we are out of time. We'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Shaka Khan, sweet home, Alabama. No, Abalama. I fucked that up. Hola, Juan. Hola, Tomas. Quien es la muchacha? Esta María. Esta bonita, eh? Sí, esta muy bonita lunch con Pacho Villa. Sí, bien. What, what did you just say? Hola. You say Dave Silver wrecked my car again? Don't let him drive. I'm not. You do. We were thinking of doing a road trip, but, and he was like, yeah, we could split time driving. And I just cut eyes over at him. I think that was his idea all along. He knew if I wrecked my rim or if he wrecked my rim one time, he would never have to drive. He wrecked your rim. He wrecked my rim. Wait, I got to edit this out. We'll see you next week. Oh, hey, real quick. I wanted to tell you what Matthew in Pennsylvania wrote. I had a great experience at SaveWithConrad.com. I worked with Derek and he quickly answered any questions I had. Being able to text him directly made things so much easier than having to wait on phone calls or schedule meetings at the bank. 
being able to do everything from home was extremely convenient. I was in a tough spot with the pandemic going on, but it looks like everything is going to work out for me just in time. I would definitely recommend Conrad and his team to anyone looking for mortgage help. How can we help you? You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket, but you do need 10 minutes at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. We're licensed in more than 40 states, and you even get to skip your next two house payments at savewithconrad.com. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.